Thank you, uh, sister, for uh, doing the announcements. Uh, today, we're going to be doing something a little special to commemorate our 10-year anniversary. Uh, so pastors uh, John, Ed, and Eric and I will be preaching 15-minute um, sermonettes. So in total, there'll be 10 verses handpicked uh, for us, the church, to hear um, after 10 years of ministry as a body of Christ. So before I begin, let's pray. Father, we come to you. I pray that you would stir in our hearts uh, a desire to hear what you have to say to us and that, Lord, that you would uh, help me in particular to uh, be faithful to you and um, that as a church we can bring honor and glory to your name as the word is preached today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if I asked you to describe something special, to describe your Christian life, how would you characterize it? Would you like Paul liken it to warfare? Uh, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ, Jesus. And he also talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6, when he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Well, today's passage will be focused on Hebrews 12, 1-2. So if you have your Bibles or your app, please turn with me to it. And it will also be projected here. And Paul says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, uh, Paul not only compares the Christian life to a war, but he also likens it to a race. Notice how he doesn't compare it to a, uh, a tea party or a picnic or a feel-good get-together. He uses military language to describe it. And he uses the metaphor of an intense race. To simply put, the Christian life is an active and ardent endeavor. Our church turns 10 years old this week, and we've been running this Christian marathon together for a whole decade. That's a pretty long time. It's about a third of my life. But how long is this race supposed to last? Well, it lasts until you die. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, when he seems to be anticipating his demise, his death, he says, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. See, most of us take it for granted and assume that we'll live until we are old. But even just this past week, we were reminded of how fleeting life can be and how only God has control of it. No one would have imagined that the helicopter that Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and the precious seven other lives aboard it would crash. Friends, your, your status, your accomplishments, your endeavors, they do not make you immune to death. None of us are guaranteed old age. The point I'm trying to make here is, if your life as you know it was about to end, would you be able to say what Paul said? Are you living a life in light of the finish line? Have you kept the faith? Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 are like a gunshot that marks the beginning of a race. And Paul reminds us to run the race that is set before us with endurance until the very final lap. 
we should be running with vigor and energy towards the, the finish line. But why does he bring up that word endurance in verse 1? Well, we need to look at what was going on in the Hebrew church. Paul recalls in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, how the church joyfully endured affliction and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But in chapter 5, he describes how they have become dull of hearing and neglecting such a great salvation. The church in Hebrews, who were once keeping the faith and walking with Jesus, were now losing stamina and becoming complacent. They were basically coasting in this marathon, not even sprinting toward, uh, uh, sprinting through the race. And church, we're not immune to this either. It's very easy for us to fall into the same pattern as the Hebrew Christians did. We can start to uh, neglect the pursuit of holiness and replace it with other diversions. And the author of Hebrew tells us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely. In 1 Timothy 4.7, he also tells us to train yourself for godliness to avoid being complacent. Many times, untrained runners will sprint at the beginning of the race only to succumb to muscle failure or fatigue before they get to the finish line. And perhaps that's your diagnosis today. You have been trained in endurance, like Paul tells us to. The father of Usain Bolt, an accomplished Olympian racer and the fastest man in the world, once said in an interview that he watched his son train once, and after witnessing it, he said he preferred not to watch anymore. Why? Well, because he was shocked at how much hard work and sacrifice his training demanded. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the race? So run that you may obtain it. Winning a race requires hard work and training. This training calls you to saturate yourself on God's word, to pray fervently and unceasingly, and it means to put to death and lay aside sins so that you can present your bodies as living sacrifice, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. So you must actively engage in these things to condition your mind and body to last through the race and cross the finish line. But the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He knows running the race is hard work. He knows how easy it is to feel dejected. Therefore, he reminds us that this great race is also filled with hope and motivation along the way. First, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we, have, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the word therefore at the beginning of the sentence connects back to the ch- previous chapter in which Paul mentions some saints who made it to the end of the race. These saints are the witnesses Paul points us to. Characters like Noah, who were mocked by his peers because he trusted in the Lord and built a, a, a huge ark during sunny, dry days. There is also Abraham, who lied about his wife being his sister and let her be taken as Pharaoh's wife. Let's not forget about a David, who was an adulterer and murderer. There's also Jacob, Rahab, and Gideon, and Isaac. And no matter how vastly different their stories were, all these saints finished the race. After going through intense trials and occasional falls, they stood back up and decided that a life of faith was worth running. Despite being imperfect, they completed the race by the grace 
of a perfect God. It is possible. They have done it. So no matter where you are in your life right now, you can start, continue, or re-enter this race and complete it successfully. It has been done before, and it can be done again by you and any other who place their faith in Christ, and it can be done uh, and derive their strength from him. Do you feel tired, or are you coasting? Maybe you're feeling like a loser or a failure with doubts as to whether you can go on. But my encouragement to you today is to remember all those saints who have run the race with endurance and didn't give up. Keep on running. Lastly, there's no better motivation or hope than this. The author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. See, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who is a perfect example. Jesus' obedience led him to the cross, and he endured the ultimate trial. He bore our sins upon his shoulders, and he remained faithful until the very end. He ran the perfect race so that you could join as well. Therefore, he was raised to life by the Father and was exalted. If you turn to Matthew chapter 14, you'll read about Peter walking on water. And to set up the the background, the, the waves were crashing on the boat and the disciples were very scared. The wind was blowing harshly and the disciples were very far from land. Then Jesus appeared to the disciples as if walking on the water. And Jesus calls to Peter to come out and walk in him. In verse 29, Peter gets out of the boat and came to Jesus. In verse 30, however, we see that when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and he looked around at the crashing waves for a brief moment. But when he did, he became to sink began to sink. And that's why the author of Hebrews reminds his readers to look to Jesus. For runners, it's very important for you to look ahead and see what's coming in front of you so that you you don't trip or fall over something. And that's the same way with the Christian life. The storms of life will come as tests of faith, but our eyes should be securely kept on Jesus Christ until we see the finish line. Not only is Jesus our perfect example, he is also our sustainer. When Jesus sees Peter sinking, he doesn't abandon Peter. In verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? There will be moments like this when we, like Peter, will struggle with unbelief. However, take faith in the sure hope that we have in Jesus He will sustain us through moments of doubt, even though we may have already quit. And he invites us to come run the race again and provides the strength for us to do so. When you feel dejected or like giving up, Jesus will come to you in your distress. So what happens to Peter? He's one of the boldest disciples and sometimes the most cowardly, as as we see when he abandons Christ before his death. But Jesus wasn't done with him. We see in Acts chapter 12, verse 6, and it says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding, and before the, door regarding the prison. See, Peter, he was on his way to get beheaded the next day. 
And what do we see him doing here? He's sleeping, right? He was moments away from death, and yet because he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able to rest. He had, by God's grace, preserved. And while Peter was focused on Jesus, his faith was strong. He knew that Jesus loved him and would never let him down. So as I close, Maranatha, I encourage you to keep running with endurance. Equip yourself by meditating on God's word. Don't grow complacent and take your spiritual health for granted. Don't take this church for granted. And remember that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pray for, for and serve the body of Christ with cheering, while cheering one another as we run this race together as a church. It's arduous and Satan wants us to fail, but focus on the one who is in control of every situation. And if we stumble or doubt when we encounter trials, remember to look to Jesus who is ready and willing to help, for he is near and is Emmanuel, God with us. And on that day, when we cross the finish line and are glorified with all the saints surrounding us, we will enjoy the joy of being with Jesus forever. Amen. I feel like we should like tag, you know, like what in the, uh, I, used to, I grew up watching wrestling and uh, should wear like masks or something. Um, I have three verses for the church today. Uh, the first verse is 2 Corinthians 6.10. It has one of my favorite phrases in the Bible in it. It reads like this, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That first uh, phrase, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Right? It's, this is the middle of a, of a passage here. It's part of a larger passage where Paul is talking about how his sufferings demonstrate that he is God's servant. He talks about how he suffered through afflictions, through beatings, imprisonment, sleepless nights, hunger, and the list goes on and on. But then he says that although he's facing these trials, the true reality, it's quite the opposite. On the surface, he says he's treated as imposters, as those who have a fake message or a fake savior. But yet we know that we are true. We have the message of God. On the outside, he says, we are dying and punished. But the reality is that we are the ones who in fact have eternal life and truly live. We are killed, but death to the Christian is merely like opening the door into heaven. And then we get to our passage, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We Christians are filled with sorrow, yet always rejoicing. I love this phrase. It's a profound paradox that I want our church to remember. Because Christians are not those who just and only rejoice. Right? We're not blind to the tragedies in our lives. Sad things do happen to us and real pain is felt. We as Christians experience trials of abuse, abandonment, questions of why God and how long God. There are those in this room that I know that have lost a parent or a child, have chronic health issues, have struggled with depression, 
We know what it's like to have sorrow. Christians know how to weep, as did our Savior. But at the same time, we are always rejoicing. We have an indestructible joy, a living hope. We know that our suffering is neither meaningless nor indefinite. And God is the one who comforts us. And that's why Paul can say in the very next chapter, he says, that in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. And so the application for us, Maranatha, is is that it's not whether you're happy or sad when you come to church on a Sunday. It's both. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We should not choose one disposition over the other. And you know which one you tend towards. If you're predisposed to having a defeatist mentality, you tend to focus on the gloom in your life, I would encourage you to rejoice in our Savior. If you're the optimist and you tend to put on a a tough exterior and you tend to sweep your sadness under the rug, I would say to you that it's okay not to be okay. Let's not put up a facade and hide our pain. It's okay not to be okay. We should open up and follow up with others about how we're doing when we have sorrow in our lives And let that be an opportunity for us to encourage each other. Amen? The second verse that I chose was 2 Peter 1.10. It reads, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Simply put here, God is commanding us to make sure that we are saved. How do we make sure that we are saved? What are these qualities that he's referring to? How do they confirm our election? And how is it that we will never fall, or that is, fall away from the faith? Well, the qualities here, I'll give you the the, the shortcut. It's the eight qualities that he mentions in verses 5 to 7. The qualities are faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Right? These qualities are so vital to the Christian that they actually prove as evidence of our faith. It's not that these characteristics in and of themselves save us and make us acceptable to God, but when Jesus says in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruit, this is the fruit. These qualities must exist if you are a Christian. So therefore, Maranatha, Confirm your calling and election. Examine your life. Be serious about sin and call it out. Take a hard look at yourself and evaluate how you think and how you feel. Right? Ask yourself, do, does my lifestyle, you know, is it in line with the qualities that the Bible is describing? What I want to encourage you to do is that scripture tells us in 1 Timothy 4.16 to watch your life and your doctrine closely so that you can be sure that you are in the faith. We should not think of salvation as like a set it and forget it type of arrangement. What scripture is commanding us to do is the hard work of self-examination. Right? Be diligent. It means work hard. Another way we can confirm our election is to ask fellow believers. Because you don't always confirm something just by looking at it for yourself. You can ask those around you. A spouse, a friend, a pastor. 
And that actually requires the discomfort of pressing into each other and speaking truth in love. It requires us to do maybe something that we are not naturally inclined to do, that is, to form deep and meaningful and God-centered relationships. So my desire for our church is to be a church that humbly confronts sins and confirms their election and practices these qualities. Because if we practice these qualities, we are indeed Christians and we will never fall away. The last verse I've chosen is 1 John 2.15. It reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? Do not love the world. That's what it says. But we know that John 3.16 indeed affirms that God so loved the world. So what is John saying here? Right? What does he mean by loving the world? Well, in this context, he's talking about conformity to the world. As it says in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? He's warning against worldliness. As it says in James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So here, God is calling us to a life of holiness, a life of purity. Because being holy means to be set apart, separate. We are called to be different from the world. And do not mistakenly think that you have to be like the world to love the world. Paul became all things to all men that he may save some, but he never compromised his morals. Jesus dined with sinners and tax collectors, which in that day was a very intimate thing to do, but he remained sinless. And the world needs godly people who will love the lost. As you know, our society today is in a moral decline. Things that were once normal are being called into question. Things that were good are good are being called evil and evil good. And there is an actual anti-Christian agenda behind some of these trends and challenges. That because the devil is active and he's blinding people's hearts. And sin is, is permeating more and more into our culture. So what I want our church to do is not to love the world, but to love the Father, as it says here. I want our church to be aware and vigilant of how, even in the subtle ways, that sin can creep into our lives. And even we may be enticed to follow. Paul warns in 2 Timothy 4.3, he says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Even churches will succumb and have succumbed to the influence of the world because of what people want to hear. So we are being called instead to be committed to holiness. Guard yourselves intently against the influences of the world. The priority of the Christian is always what God, the Holy Scriptures, and the church. As we prioritize these things, we can love our neighbors and unbelievers. And although we are different, from that place, we reach the lost. So 10 years ago, our church was founded on this vision, 
to be in the world, but not of the world. In this Sunday, it's particularly bittersweet for me because my term officially as an elder is coming to an end. As I transition from uh, Pastor Eric to just Eric, you know, I earnestly wanted to leave you with these verses as your pastor. I brought, I brought my sword, if you guys saw it six years ago. Someone had a brilliant idea to give me a sword, so I brought it. Sorry, uh, Ed Inkle. Um, he's on our security ministry, so I'm disclosing it. But as I close, you know, I want to close with a prayer from my journal the day before we launched our first service. Uh, Ten years ago, as you may know, God used Juan Kwok and his family to plant this church with a ragtag team of 20 people, mostly 20-year-olds, um, who had no idea what they were doing. One of them was me. Another one was Daniel over there. was laughing the loudest. We put our blood, sweat, and tears, especially the Kwoks, into our church. And, it's, and as the Spirit was being poured out on us, we poured it into each other as much as we could. So I believe God honored this prayer, and I want to pray it again so that God would sustain us for another 10, 20, and 30 years, 100 years. Let's pray. February 6, 2010. So much planning, Lord, but I must submit only to you. There is no church without you. We are just a group of people without you. You are what makes the temple holy and meaningful. And without you, we have no meaning. And I'm here the day before the church plant, wondering how you can possibly use us. And I know the power and glory of your gospel, but I pray it would be more personal and precious to me. Lord, this church is completely yours. It was started by you, and it will be finished by you, and you maintain it through even now. And I pray for your presence to be thick in that place every single Sunday. And I pray we would have a lasting impact on Fort Lee. I pray our hearts would break for Fort Lee, but also that our ministry would be fruitful. And, oh Lord, I ask for your grace. And by faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Justin and Pastor Eric, for those words. Well, good morning, Maranatha. Happy 10-year anniversary. My two verses uh, this morning, I would like to speak from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Church, I wanted to choose this passage this morning to share with you all because it is both theologically rich and at the same time profoundly practical. It's important first to understand the context of the passage here. See, in this chapter, 
Paul, he's contrasting the foundational differences between the old covenant, the law of Moses, and the new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he highlights the differences by drawing upon a well-known story in the Old Testament. If you call in Exodus, right, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him and the Israelites the law. And before Moses goes up to the mountain, God shows up in a theophany. Theophany is a visible display, a manifestation of his presence. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was smoke. There was fire. Loud trumpets sounding off as the Lord's presence descended upon Mount Sinai. And at this sight and sound, the Israelites were trembling. They were terrified. And rightly so, because God If there's one thing he is, he's holy. And his presence is awesome. So the Israelites were terrified when they saw this. They begged Moses, 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 you go speak to the Lord, lest we be destroyed. So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He receives the law. He delivers it to the people. And what was the response of the people? They all in one voice affirm it. We will obey it. We will obey it, Moses. The Lord then calls up Moses up again to Mount Sinai. And this time, Moses is gone for a little while. If you read carefully, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people become restless. As the story goes, Moses then descends from the mountain and he hears music. He hears singing. What does he find? The Israelites engaging in terrible sin. Read the story you know about the the golden calf. Where Aaron says, these are the God who delivered you out of the hands of Egypt. Well, in anger, Moses smashes the stone tablets and he deals with the sin. Read carefully, there was sickness, there was suffering, and there was death the wages of sin. Where after the sin was dealt with, Moses goes up to the mountain alone. And there he begs and he pleads to God for the Israelites. The Lord graciously forgives them and he reestablishes the covenant. Now this time, Moses descends the mountain again. He goes up and down many times. And this time, something is different. He doesn't realize this, but his face is shining. It's shining with the glory of the Lord. And when Aaron and the Israelites saw this, they were terrified and they trembled. And so Moses wore a veil to shroud the glory. Each time Moses was in the presence of God, the veil was removed. It came off. Whenever he approached the Israelites, he had to put the veil on. It was necessary. As you hopefully can see in this story, clearly there was a separation between the Israelites and God. And without Moses as the intercessor, the Israelites were hopeless because of their hard-heartedness and sinfulness. Even if they wanted to, 
the Israelites could not freely approach the presence of God. Even the remnants of God's glory shining through Moses had to be covered. It had to be veiled from the Israelites. And so when Paul says in verse 17 here, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The question is, what kind of freedom is Paul referring to here? Freedom from what constraint? Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, because of his shed blood, we are free to draw near to the presence of God. Each Sunday when we come here, when we gather to, to worship, to sing praises, it's not your, the effort is not getting up from bed or getting all fixed up and such. The work that was done on the cross, that was the true work to allow us to draw near to his presence. Instead of terror and fear, we are welcomed. Paul says earlier in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. In verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are told in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, that is Jesus, the veil is removed. Previously, because of hard-heartedness and sinfulness of man, there was a keep away, keep out sign. You're not welcome because of sin. But now, because of God's Son, his precious blood, the veil was torn in two, and we are welcome and accepted in his presence. Well, Paul goes on to say something even greater. We are free to not just approach God's presence because of Christ, we are also free to behold God's glory. Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul says that be, we behold God's glory, something happens. We are transformed into his likeness. Brothers and sisters, if you want to become Christ-like, if you want to overcome sin, if you want to grow in love for others, if you want to put sin to death in your life, there is only one sure remedy. That is to behold Christ. That is to behold him. To look upon the one who has carried the weight of your sins and my sins and marvel that though we are our great sinner, undeserving and an enemy of his, he has nevertheless loved us enough to purchase our life with his own blood. When you marvel at this glorious truth and behold it, that's when sin's grip becomes rendered powerless and true transformation begins. You don't learn, you, you don't grow in love by trying to love harder. You grow in love by looking the one who has loved you. You don't grow in patience by, by you know, kind of gritting your teeth and pulling things up from your bootstraps. You grow in patience when you look upon the Savior who has been so patient with you. 
This transformation that Paul says here is an ongoing process. You behold and you become. You behold and you become. This is a lifelong process, sanctification. But friends, that process will one day be complete. And you know when and how that happens? John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Friends, that final and complete transformation comes when our faith becomes sight, that very last time. And we will be fully transformed into his likeness when we behold him fully as he is. Maranatha, it's been 10 years. Just as Pastor Eric prayed, we long for it to be 20, 30, 100 years. Our prayer is that we would all behold the glories of Christ so that we may become transformed into his likeness. Amen. Well, I get to round out this tag team preaching session. As we've already heard that we ought to run with endurance, to pursue godliness, to behold Christ as, we, as God is making us more like Christ. And what I want to do as we close is to round out this time and to highlight this arc of God's faithfulness. To highlight this arc in a way to encourage us to press on as we find, our, uh, as we find ourselves in that big picture story. It's my hope that our hearts will be joined together as we celebrate our faithful God in spirit and in truth. And together we will be reinvigorated to press on in the work that God has called us to as a local church. So I want us to remember, I want us to hope, and I want us to abound. The first is that we ought to remember. And the first verse comes to us from 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 12. It's found in the middle of a song written by David. He writes, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. It goes on in verse 13, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. King David writes this song. He, he composes a song for celebration activities that were thrown in Jerusalem as they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city to rest there. Through David, God has given victory over Israel's enemies and has established peace for his people. This was truly a time to celebrate. And I invite you to go home and read the whole song that he writes. But it's bursting with thanksgiving. Bursting, boasting of God's mighty works. It's an invitation to give thanks and sing unto the Lord. David instructs us to remember the wondrous works the Lord has done, the miracles he has accomplished, and the wisdom of all his judgments in doing so. In this song, David retells the story of God's faithfulness and redemption. 
This is an instruction for the people of Israel to remember their stories from their origin. That's why he says, children of Jacob, chosen ones. Remember, we talked about that, that drop-down menu. As you're on a website, you go over, you hover over about, and it drops down all the little things about that page. That is code for remember your story. And he says, do you remember who you are, you chosen ones? Do you remember what God has accomplished? Remembering is a holy activity. And it, it's different from reminiscing. Reminiscing is like remembering the good old days with a fondness for them that, that tends to be for the self or for a small group. And it's just kind of like... It, it, it's, it's daydreaming. You're, you're kind of transported back, but then it's, it's, it's gone. Remembering is, I think, is more concrete. It's also looking back, but it's grounded in our moment right now. It's grounded in the present. It is to call to mind from one's memory an image that is part of our own story. David is not telling them to look back to just see the good old days. But he's calling them to remember as a means to strengthen their heart in the present. To cause their hearts to rejoice. Just a couple weeks ago, I was with a friend of mine who I grew up with. And we did both remembering and reminiscing. We were on the same wrestling team together. We had a bunch of laughs about our wrestling team and the guys and where they are now. But then, he's also the, the, the guy that the Lord used to bring me to himself. We also spent time talking about what we remember when I first heard the gospel. How, how the Lord had so directed our paths on one specific day that it changed literally the course of my life. It was great to laugh. It was wonderful to remember. So as we think about 10 years as a church... Let us do so in a way that will ground us today and propel us forward. And so let me help you just tick through a couple things. Consider the gifts that God has given to us, Maranatha. Ten years as a church, growth from 20 folks to this. This meeting space. It started in a hotel, lot, in a hotel conference room. We now have a permanent space, provision year after year. He has allowed us to join him on mission in these gatherings week in and week out. Kids ministry, youth, youth retreats, mission trips, conferences, retreats, outreaches. We got to plan a church that has its first public meeting today. You'll hear more about that in a moment. Take a moment to consider how the Lord has worked in your particular life. Through folks like Juan and Diane, through Rob and Delamar, through uh, Roberto and Eunice, through Eric and Christina, through Ed and Liz, through Justin and Annie, through Peter and Harem, through your community group leaders, through your brothers and sisters. Consider how he has saved you. Remember that the Lord has called you to himself. Maybe you were baptized here. You were built up here. You experienced healing here. You had victory over sin here. You had, were knit into a community here. Some of you found a spouse. You had kids and lots of them. You discerned a call of ministry or vocation in your own life. 
You grew in your love, your appreciation, and longing for the gospel, which is the greatest of all God's miraculous works that we are to regularly call to mind. Friends, we're not here to simply reminisce. We're here to remember God's faithfulness. This is the ground for our celebration today. Remembering God's miraculous, wonderful works. This holy activity of remembering assures and secures our heart. In that God has proven faithful to us in all his dealings. Remembering gives us hope also for the future that even as he has acted in the past, I can trust him to act the same way in the future because he is faithful. And so we remember and we also have hope, which brings us to our second point, Philippians 1.6. Paul writes to the church, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That first part of the verse can actually also be translated, I am convinced of this. What is it that Paul is convinced of? The work that God began, namely, your calling, your redemption, your transformation, your renewal, is a work that God has begun, is doing, and will be doing until the day when we see Jesus face to face, as Pastor had just read. God is busy shaping us into the image of Christ. He's helping us to behold him that we might become like him. Maranatha, this is great news for us as individuals, but it's also good news for us as a church collectively because it means that Jesus is not done with you and it also means that Jesus is not done with us. This verse, Philippians 1.6, strengthens us and ought to give us hope as we enter another year as a church. Not because we have it all together, newsflash, we don't. But because we serve a God who is able and who is active, who knows the end from the beginning, and is intimately involved in your life particular and our life particular as well. This is a clear invitation. I think this verse is a clear invitation as remember what God has done. As we long for what he is doing, as we hope in his, with, his, with, a, with an unshakable hope, it's a clear invitation for all to us to engage regardless of whether you've been here the last 10 years and every Sunday since like Pastor Eric or you've just been here the past 10 Sundays. God is at work in our midst. And he invites us to remember the past, to look to the future. And as a result, our present is transformed. It brings us to our last verse, that we're to abound. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It's the shortest point of them all. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Therefore, 
because of the miraculous work of God in the past, because of his promise for the future, let us press on being steadfast in our faith, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that he, that, uh, that, that we're always abounding in the work of the Lord, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he gives us through the spirit with one mind together, knowing that he is the one at work in our work. Let us remember the past faithfulness of God. Let us live hopefully in light of the promises for our future and therefore walk in light of these truths knowing he is among us and is active and he is, he is for us. And so I close with a, a prayer of benediction from Paul in 2 Thessalonians. It says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.